just a moment here. Turn to Second Chronicles. I know it's not Matthew. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And um, yeah, Second Chronicles chapter 20. Chronicles C H. <laughs> chapter 20. Oh, wow, way to go. So we, we here have um, this moment. This is I just want to give some background to why I value uh, worship so much. I mean, obviously, we all know that I like to play and sing, but um, Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, is, is kind of stressing out because the Moabites and the Ammonites are coming against him, and the stalactites and the Mennonites, no, um, they're not coming against him. Uh, but they're coming against him. Yeah, they're good dancers. And, and they are greater than them. And so we see, um, if you look at uh, verse 18, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and to say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to, to sing and praise the Lord's uh, praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting themselves to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. And when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped." And so I think what we see here is a couple things that is important for us when it comes to worship is that, and that's why I think there's always a criticism about worship and it's one of the hotly, most hotly debated, uh, music is one of the most hotly debated subjects in Christendom. Um, take it from someone who's been in music ministry for 30 years. It is, it is the, it's the one thing. They'll listen to a bad sermon on and on and on again and won't say a word, but they don't like the music, and you're going to hear about it. Um, but what I think is important is that we understand that there's a principle that God is sharing here. Those who are clothed in holy attire, you and I are clothed in holy attire. We have been given the righteousness of Christ, and so it's on us. And they go to battle, and they send the singers out. By the way, singers usually aren't your warriors, right? So you send the singers out. And when, when I first came across the scripture, uh, uh, skinny jeans and deep V's were the popular thing for, for the popular worship leaders at the time, so several years ago. And I, oh, I had this, had this picture of all these dudes who, who when, I ha when I would have them in to, uh, um, at, at the church in New Mexico, you know, oh, I'm so hungry. And so you'd get them something to eat, and they'd eat like two bites. Oh, man, I'm so stuffed. I'm like, dude, come on now. You know? And so, but you see these guys going out, and, and that's just the picture I had. But they're singing and their worship and praising a holy God defeated the enemy. 
And I really truly believe that there is battle won and lost in worship. And that's why I think it's important that we at the beginning of our services and even you know tonight that we start with some worship because the enemy doesn't want you to hear God's word. The enemy doesn't want you to, to feel empowered and, and like the, the battle's been won. He wants you to feel like you're defeated and God's word is whatever, right? We didn't get to it. So um, I always go back to this First Chronicles 20 because I really think it's important for us as believers to go praise the Lord, worship Him in holy attire. He's been given you the very righteousness of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word as we look at the gospel of Matthew for some time tonight. We pray that we would uh, gain and, and glean and grow. And so, Lord, help us to understand. We know, Holy Spirit, you're the one who teaches us. And so we look forward to what you're going to share with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive in, um, we get some background on Matthew. And there was no prophet, you see, up until the point of Jesus... Um, before John the Baptist, for about 400 years. That doesn't mean, I mean, they call this the intertestamental period, well, duh, between the two testaments, that makes sense. A lot of scholars call this the silent years, uh, because God did not have a prophet who was actually speaking on behalf of God, and so there was nothing going on. Now, we do believe that God was still working, uh, John the Baptist, uh, which when we get to him, I'll, I'll spend a little more time on, he would have been believed to be part of the Essenes, his, where he came from, his attire, and his emphasis on baptism gives us some clue. Essenes were the ones who were where we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they, they were the ones who were protecting God's word and transcribing it. And so we believe John was part of that, and we'll talk about that when we get more to John. But this is this intertestamental period where God was supposedly silent and all of a sudden now we have something happening, right? There's something on the scene. Um, and so uh, many scholars believe this was penned somewhere between 50 AD and 80 AD. Now what's interesting is none of the other gospel accounts tell us who Matthew is. Matthew self-describes himself in Matthew 9.9 as a tax collector. The other guys showed some grace. They showed some love. He's like, no, I'm, you know, I'm a ta tax collector. Especially Jewish tax collectors were frowned upon at that time because, because Rome was occupying and they didn't like Rome and they didn't want to pay taxes to Rome. But now you had a tax collector who was a Jew who was taking taxes for Rome and all tax collectors had the, the, um, uh, the rap, what's the other word for it? The reputation of skimming off the top. So the government says, hey, we need five bucks for, for every uh, $100. He's like, hey, the government needs $750 for every $100. And then the $250 would go in his pocket, $5 would go to the government, and the government would pay him also. But the government, a uh, Roman government, did not discourage it. If you can make more money, go for it. They don't care, especially off Jewish people. We don't care. So he, in Matthew 9 9, calls himself a tax collector. Um, so he's like, very clear. Um, the name Matthew is Matityahu, M-A-T-T-I-T-Y-A-H-U, um, which means gift of God. If you just stop at Matt, it just means gift. So if people want to be called Matt, they're saying, I'm just a gift. <laughs> but Matityahu, Matthew, is a gift of God. Now there's debate, and we're not going to get into it because it's really insignificant, on where Matthew got his material. Some people believe that Mark wrote his gospel first, and Matthew's like, hey, you left a bunch of stuff out. 
Um, some people believe that Matthew wrote his gospel first, and Mark's like, man, why did you leave these things out? Let me just fill in the blanks. That's why Matthew's so brief, or Mark's so brief. Other people have this, scholars have this idea of this other source called Q, not from Star Trek, but Q, who both Mark and Matthew got their information from. Doesn't matter. What matters is tradition tells us that Matthew was the author of this, and we also believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who has inspired. Um, uh, when we look at these other um, ideas and theories, a lot of it is the fact that the, the enemy wants to get us to, to question the validity of, of something like this. Do you have a question? Is Q kind of like, I mean, obviously it's a person kind of like Jehoshaphat? No. The the guy who wasn't very religious. Josephus. Josephus. Yeah, no, no, Q is an unknown source. Okay. Um, so that's why I don't I don't put a lot of credence in it. Um, and some people say, hey, this can't be Matthew because you know we don't know because Matthew doesn't say, hey, I wrote this. Well, he kind of does in Matthew nine nine say, hey, I was a tax collector. Um, but and because like the epistles and a lot of the Old Testament uh, prophets will announce who they are. Um, these ones do not do that. Luke kind of tells us why he's writing it. Um, but again, we sometimes have to go to church tradition and church history and go, what did the forefathers say? Who did they say wrote these? And, and who did they give credit to as they were circulated throughout the churches? Matthew would be this one. Um, again, the believed intention uh, was to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And we get this because he uses the idea of kingdom 50 times. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times. Now kingdom of heaven is only seen in the New Testament 34 times. 32 times is Matthew. That would have been very important to the Jewish mind. The kingdom of heaven is coming down. Different from kingdom of God, so let's not get those confused. Um, but kingdom of heaven, specifically that phrase, was very much um, something that Matthew used a lot. And that would have meant a lot to the Jewish mind because he was trying to again say, Jesus has come. Now they believed the kingdom of heaven was going to come down. And they were going to say, ha, 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 my father's bigger than yours. I told you. And that was not how Jesus came. Now, we know he's going to return that way, right? And we're not going to go, ha, ha, ha. No, because we're going to be like, oh, man. Glory, hallelujah, you are here. Thank you, Jesus. Um, over 100 verses. Again, this is another reason why we believe he was really speaking to the Jewish mind. Refer to Old Testament passages. And so that's important that we see that. Um, so more than any other gospel is the Old Testament reference. Matthew gives us this genealogy that leads us to the legally adopted father of Jesus Joseph, which would have been very important to the Jews. Um, you know, just to say, well, you know, God was the one who was the father of him. There had been, yeah, but he was in, it, he, but he was in Joseph's house, and so um, Joseph. Uh, would have been believed to be the legal father of Jesus. And we see this too, that Jesus was not considered a bastard. Jesus was welcomed in synagogues. Jesus was welcomed in the family business. So Joseph adopted him as his own, even though we know that God was the one who was his father. But for social standing, uh, Jesus had to be seen as Joseph's uh, son. And so we see that. And God is so good, he didn't have to do this genealogy that we're going to read in just a moment of Matthew, but he did just for, again, we see that Luke 
gives us from the line of Mary. It goes backwards all the way to Adam, son of God. But this is from the 14, well, 42 generations, anyway, up to Jesus. And we'll go through that in just a moment. And again, for the Jewish mind, this would have been very, very important to give validity to who Jesus was. Uh, because they wouldn't have accepted that Mary had a baby not from Joseph. Um, although they knew something was different. Again, he adopted him as his own. We get the story afterwards, right? We get to read it and go, oh, well, yeah, you know, it wasn't that way. He wasn't really. Um, but that would have really hindered the work of Jesus if Joseph did not care for him and take him in as his own. Another comment, or did you go? Did it go no, in? Okay. Um, interestingly enough, Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, for unto us a child is born, the famous one we read every single Christmas, unto us a son is given. These two phrases are very interesting when you think of the humanity of Jesus. So first of all, unto us a child is born. See through Mary, a child is born. Unto us a son is given is something that would have been used with adoption. You are being given this child in adoption. And so even in Isaiah, if we look, we see these two things that show him, you know, child of Mary and then Joseph being the adopted father of him. So it's kind of a cool little thing for us to look at. So let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, or Zerah, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, very fishy guy, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, he was famous for cookies, and Amos the father of Josiah, by the way, that's not true. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eli Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of El... Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We got there. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, um, 14 generations is only important to the Jewish mind. They were big on that the Messiah was going to come from King David. If you look at the Jewish word, so in, in, in Hebrew, every single letter has a numeric value. So when they would transcribe the, the, the Bible, they would actually count the numbers of each numeric value of the letter to make sure that at the end it matched the one that they were transcribing from. 
So David's um, name, so D-V-D is basically, there's not an A in David in, in Hebrew. D is four numeric numbers. Uh, v is six. D is four. So they would have gone 14 means something to them as far as this. And what, what Matthew is saying is, he came from David. He came from David. He came in the line of David. This is so important to the Jewish mind. We need to understand that he came from the line of David. Now, you might have recognized some of these people in this. And one of the things we want to pull out of tonight is that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. We're not going to look at all of them, so you can go... Phew. But we're going to pull out a few that we have some. We're going to go into the Bible, and we're going to look at what they say. So first of all, Abraham. Obviously, we think Abraham's the big kahuna of the, the, the nations, right? Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bring an offspring. And so let's look at, let's turn to Genesis chapter 12. Because we need to understand that, that um, Abraham was a liar. <laughs> Just so you know. Question for you. Yes. This book is, is written to the Jews. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Jacob. Huge, huge names for them. Big names. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yep. Yes. And, but my question was, why do they, or does Matthew feel that the genealogy going back to Adam is not significant? Um, sure, but, but, but really the reality is there were no nations of our tribes of Israel until Abraham, and actually until Isaac, but, um, and so we look at this, there wasn't that, and so it wasn't as necessary because Abraham's the starting line for the Jewish nation, that's the starting line. Now in Luke, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, okay, but um, to, to go to, and that's a physical line, which even means more, to get to, to Jesus through Mary. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, we read about Abram, and, uh, which later became Abraham. So, um, but now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman uh, beautiful in appearance. That's a nice way. Oh, you're so pretty, honey. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for, um, for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, and Egypt and the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, so he wasn't lying. And when the prince, princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt with, well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. We don't know how long she was in uh, with Pharaoh. We don't know. But the common practice would have been for other for um, other nations, if they saw somebody they liked, they'd kill the husband, take the wife for themselves. So it was a legitimate concern of Abram. 
And so we're like, oh man, Abram, you're such a liar. And look what your wife had to do. Who knows what Pharaoh did to her, right? We don't know. But God protected Abram and Sarai and, and let them go. Didn't kill, didn't kill him. And so, yeah. Let's go to Genesis 20. Well, yes. So in Genesis 20, we have a similar um, account here. Uh, beginning in um, verse 1. From there, Abraham now journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Poor Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream, there you go, by night, and said to him, Behold, you are dead. You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So, I mean, we could sit there and ascertain, well, you know, some bad things happened to Pharaoh. Could God have spoken to him in a dream and told him why? Because somehow he knows. Or, hey, why are these bad things happen? And people investigated and found out, well, that's actually his wife. That's probably why. We don't know. Doesn't totally matter. But, but somehow he knew. But um, now Abimelech had not approached her, so he, said, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in, an, in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Um, so there's an interesting point there that we could say, Okay, maybe God protected Sarai from Pharaoh. Because he protected him from doing anything to Sarah. So you, we don't want to say that for certain, but I would say God is consistent, right? Um, Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And now I have sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me these things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see uh, that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God in all this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So, okay, so uh, he's saying, I'm not totally a liar. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> he just stretched the truth a little bit. So again, we see again, God's using an imperfect people to work out his perfect plan. So let's look at Jacob, a deceiver, right? Jacob means supplanter. So what that means is to supersede another by force or treachery. So Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 26. Genesis 25, 19 through 26. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and the Pad Aram, the sister of Laban and Aram, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her her womb. The first one came out red, and his body like a hairy cloak, so that his name was Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, supplanter, heel catcher, another name for that. So his name was called Jacob. Uh, Isaac was uh, 60 years old when she bore them. Bummer. Uh, So we see this, and then we go to Genesis 27. And uh, we won't go through the whole chapter here, but what happens here is is that Rebecca hears that um, the firstborn, which is Esau, that is, it, Isaac wants to bless him. Isaac's getting old in years. His eyesight's gone. His hearing's not so great. And he's like, I know that uh, it's coming to the end. And the first son would be the one that would get all the blessing of the Lord. And what happens was Rebecca said, here's something. So he said to his son, so let me back up. Isaac says, hey, go kill, you know, my favorite meat. Come prepare it and I'll bless you. So he goes out. Rebecca says, to to uh, Jacob, hey, your dad wants to get the blessing, but I'm going to cook a goat and prepare it the way he likes it, and put and, and then but Jacob goes and then you're going to go steal his blessing, basically is what she says. And Jacob's like, yeah, but Esau's hairy, I'm not. So they she put a bunch of clo- of of a fur of a goat on him, and he walks in and he goes, well, you smell like this is Isaac, you smell like Esau. You feel like Esau, but you don't sound like Esau. Well, he goes ahead and gives the blessing to him. And again, when we see the two nations and the older will serve the younger, this is what that was was prophesying. The older will serve the younger because now Jacob got the, the blessing. And we also see another account where Esau comes in and he's famished and he needs something to eat and there's a pot of stew. And he says to Jacob, give me something to eat. And Jacob says, well, give me your birthright. He goes, well, what's my birthright if I'm already dead? So he says, okay, fine, you got my birthright. So Esau did give it up to him. And so it's not like Jacob was like, well, well, you said. But the reality is it was not Jacob's to have. So Jacob's, you know, just a deceiver. Then Judah. Judah the philanderer. So philanderer is one who frequently enters into casual sexual relationships. Genesis 38. Let's look there. This is, again, in the line of Jesus. Genesis 38. So it happened that at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira, the, the Judah saw, that Judah, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. You know, Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, called his name Onan. Bless you. And yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Um, by the way, not a popular male name anymore. Um, Judah was in Ch- uh, Shelah. Uh, so Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So remember Tamar. She's kind of the one that's in the, that, that helped become an ancestor of Jesus, or of Joseph, excuse me. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So, okay, Tamar has no husband. Now it was the job then of Onan. Um, to go take her. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of your brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for her brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground. Okay, so by the way, if people think that the Bible's boring, um, it's very interesting. So basically Onan's like, I don't want my brother to keep having kids because if he, if he impregnated uh, Tamar, 
then that all those offsprings would have been accredited to Ur, the dead brother. And not him. He's like, I don't want him, I don't want him to have any. So what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So Tamar is left with no offspring. Now again, in Jewish culture, it's really important that women have kids. And also um, to uh, what his name is uh, to Judah, it's important too. It's important that they have kids uh, because they're carrying on the family legacy. Uh, Jesus is from the line of Judah. So we see that here. And then, and so what happens is that um, he's like, well, in the course of time, verse 12, uh, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself and sat at the entrance uh, to Enam, which is the road to Timnah, for she saw that, she, that Shelah was grown up. So what was happening here was, um, since Onan didn't, uh, didn't do his job, Sheila would be the next guy to do it. But he was, he was too young. He wasn't of age. And so she was to wait, still in widow's clothes, until he became of age. Judah's responsibility was to say, okay, Sheila, now you go into her and bear children for your dead brother. Right? But, but she saw that he's of age, and Judah didn't do that. And so, um, so she saw these going up. So she took off her veil and... Um, wrapped herself up in, at the entrance, which is on the road to Timnah. And um, verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me uh, come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Uh, this is a you know, high stakes negotiation here. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send, he says, I will give you, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet ring and the cord and your staff. And so he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So then she goes away and he comes back with the goat and says, hey, where's the prostitute? And they're like, there hasn't been a prostitute here. And he goes, well, who is this? He goes, let's find out who she is. Someone has taken these things. And so, and then, then he's told, hey, Tamar is pregnant. She's been immoral. Bring her to me. I'm going to let her burn, pretty much is what he's saying. We're going to stone her. We're going to kill her. She deserves to die. And, and he goes, who's the father? And she goes, well, whoever owns this cord and the signet ring and the staff. And right there he goes, uh-oh. Um, I didn't do my job through Sheila, and she's actually more righteous to me. But this is the line of Joseph to Jesus. I mean, it's pretty... Hmm. Anyway, then we have Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. So in Joshua 2 and then Joshua 6, we see this. Rahab had relations, by the way, with Salmon, and they produced Boaz. Okay, so this is interesting. So we remember the spies go in to Jericho, and they're going to go look, and they're going to go, what, how are we going to do this? She hid the spies. She was a harlot. Some people believe she actually uh, like owned a type of, type of brothel, if you would. But it was on the edge of the city, on this, uh, around the fence of the city. It wouldn't be in the center of the city. They have to kind of go to the edge of the city. And so we know that the story goes is that, that when they get there, she says, hey, when you guys come to attack, please spare us. And they said, we will lay, uh, you know, send a scarlet cord down the, the, the window outside so we'll know which one is you. Um, and so, again, again, if you look at scarlet cord, you see this, this idea of Jesus, the whole idea of the scarlet running through. It's fun to look at that. But they go around, they get to Jericho, and God says, okay, guys, I want you to march around it uh, one time a day for six days and be quiet. Okay, back to Second Chronicles. That sounds like a great, you know, uh, battle plan. On the seventh day, you're going to uh, go around seven times, 
And then on the seventh time, you're going to shout and blow the trumpets. And so they do that, and all the walls come crumbling down, except for Rahab's house, who was spared. Right? And so then she kind of adopts, is adopted into their tribe, and we see that she has relations with Salmon. And Boaz, which is a really important person in the genealogy of Jesus, was born. Um, and Boaz leads us to Ruth, the Moabite. Now, interesting something about the Moabites and the Ammonites, they were children of incest. Uh, so go to Genesis chapter 19. And we will not go through the whole thing. But in Genesis 19, uh, we have Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the angels of the Lord come down to visit Lot. And we see this crazy scene where Lot hurries them into his house and all the men of the city come and they bang on the door and they say, let those, let those angels or those men, because they were different looking, come out so we might have sex with them. And Lot says, no, but take my daughters because they're virgins. No, we don't want your daughters. And so the angels of the Lord uh, you know, struck all the men of the city with blindness. And um, you know, Lot was whatever. And so then God tells Lot, get out. I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. Don't look back. Get out. So he tells them the land he can go to after a little bit of negotiation. And so he, his two daughters, and his wife go. And his wife turns around because she was longing for the, what she was leaving. And she turns into a pillar of salt. So now they go to where they're going. And the daughters are like, um, we're the last girls on earth and he's the last dude on earth. That's really what they thought to some degree. How are we going to continue to populate the earth? So the older one goes, I know. Let's get dad drunk and I'll lay with him. And then the next day, we'll get him drunk again. And you, sis, you go lay with him. And that's what they did. They both got pregnant by their dad. The first one bore Moab. The second one bore Ammon. And we have the Moabites and the Ammonites. So we see Ruth, the Moabitess, who went with Esther, not Esther, uh, Ruth and um, Naomi. Naomi, thank you. Uh, and, you know, Ruth chose, I'm going to make your God my God. And she sees Boaz out in the field. Boaz brings her in and they have uh, the grandparents. They are the grandparents of David. So interestingly enough. So David, we know, that leads us to David, who was an adulterer, if you didn't know that, and a murderer. Second Samuel chapter 11. Great family line. I mean, if you ever feel bad about your family, just kind of look at, at where Jesus came from and the line that was attributed to Jesus, and you'll feel okay. 2 Samuel 11. And a couple notes on this. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but um, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites. Remember that? Oh, children of incest. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged uh, Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now there's an interesting note here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, but David stays behind. Um, I think that is always a good point for us to go, we're in a battle. We can't just stay behind. When we stay behind and we're not engaging in the battle, uh, like we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, we are in a battle. We don't battle against flesh and blood. Um, but when we relax a little bit and say, ah, I'm going to sit this one out, that's when sin is crouching at the door. And we see that. So they're out the battle, and Bathsheba is taking a bath on a rooftop, which would not have been uncommon 
for, for women to do. So a lot of people, you know, put the onus on Bathsheba. Well, if she wouldn't have been displaying herself. No, it's not. That's what they did. That they, they stored water on the roof. That's where the sun is. They got warm water. It was easier to take baths up there than anywhere else. And there's some other reasons for it, but that's what they did. So he's looking around, chilling out, not going to battle. And he goes, hey, wow, she looks pretty good. Who is that? And they tell her, tell him who it is. She goes, bring her to me. And what does he do? Well, he takes her. And he has relations with her. And that son died. But when he find out that, that I get ahead of myself, when we find out that, he, that she's pregnant, he goes, I know, I'll bring Uriah in. And I'll get him drunk up and he'll go home to his wife, have relations with her, then no one will be the wiser for it. They'll, they'll think it was his. Well, Uriah was such a faithful servant. He goes, how can I enjoy the pleasures basically of my wife while my men are out there? So he sat, he, he hung out with men, soldiers, and he slept there. Uh, David tried a couple times, didn't work. So he sends word and he says, this is what we're going to do. And he sends words to the captain and the captain uh, sends them all to the front line and they pull back, leaving Uriah there. And so he was murdered. And so then David took in Bathsheba. Bathsheba so has this child. Child dies. But it doesn't mean that she doesn't have more children. Uh, and so again, David, um, and we see David was a deceiver at times too. He was not always honest. Um, uh, but God used him greatly. And then, but he was the official king of Israel. Saul, we know, was first, um, but he blew it. And David was the one that, that, that most Jews would go, that's our king. But then Bathsheba had Solomon. And we see Solomon was an idolater and a womanizer. Uh, so let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. And here's the thing. Solomon is considered the wisest man to ever be on earth. And if you read some of the things he did, you're like, I don't know about that. Uh, chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Um, he is very wise. But again, this is the son of Bathsheba and uh, David. And Solomon was the one who actually got to build the temple. So there's another, you know, they exalt Solomon quite a bit. Solomon wrote for us um, uh, the Proverbs and Song of Solomon, and so there's great wisdom. You know, Proverbs are considered the chapter of wisdom, right? There's some practical wisdom in there. You know, young man, stay away from the harlot. Okay, that makes sense, you know. So uh, verse 1 of 1 Kings 11, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Um, oh wait, Moabite? Ammonite? Just Wow, you know, these people keep coming up. Um, Edomite? Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will churn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives churned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, to Solomon. Uh, and so Solomon did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh and abomination of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites and the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Now, Molech, 
um, was a god who they would place over a fire and the hands that they would fashion out of bronze or metal or something of that, they would heat up the hands um, to really hot, to red hot, and they would offer their newborns to him. So they would set the newborns on the hands and because of the heat of the hands, the newborns would curl up and fall into the fire. These are the dudes that, that Solomon helped them erect these type of things to worship their God. So Solomon blew it, right? Rehoboam, um, oh, by the way, his mom was an Ammonite, um, but Rehoboam in 1 Kings chapter 14, um, 21 through 31. So not too far. Um, yeah, 1 Kings 14, 21. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, and they committed more than all that their fathers had done. Bad dude. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they also um, were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of the king Rehoboam, Shishak, king of, of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the house of the king's house. And as often as the king went in the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them to the guard room. And so he just kind of gave over the kingdom. You know? Here you go. See ya. And then we have Jehoram, who was a murderer. We'll just really quick, Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 21. Um, it was interesting. We were, we were in chapter 20, and now we're in chapter 21. You know, so after this great victory, now we have Jehoram come in. And if you just look at uh, verse 4 of 21, 2 Chronicles 21, when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. It's like, I'm not going to give a chance to anybody else taking my throne. You're all dead. See ya. Um, and it's funny when you watch different shows, you know, Vikings, uh, Game of Thrones, the other thing. This is a... The, I mean, they're just ripping off the Bible. This is what happened in history. People did these things. I'm not endorsing any of those shows. But what I'm saying is you see all these things happening, and you're like, oh, man, how could they do that? That's amazing. And it's like, no, this is common practice. We see this. And in the line that leads to our Savior. And then Manasseh who sacrificed his own son and practiced sorcery and all kinds of evil. 2 Kings 21. We just go back here really quick. We won't read the whole thing. But, 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was 
Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of all the nations. By the way, a 12-year-old should not have that much power. That might be like giving a 17 or 18-year-old a $6 million basketball contract. Okay. His mother, uh, accor- <laughs> and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab. Now, Asherah pole was where temple prostitutes would do stuff as worship around the pole. That's where people would come. And so, anyway. Pole dancing, yeah, there you go. And Ahab, they had nothing new under the sun. And Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, in which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with, with um, mediums and necromancers. So those are people who call upon the dead, right? And he did much evil in the side of Bad dude. First of all, put a 12 year old in power. That's rough for them. Uh, probably gonna, not going to go very well. It's like the, the kid Disney star of his time. Yeah, right? Yeah, and he just got, I can't remember the name, but he got, I mean, you just see this, that, that it, you know, give them absolute power, and they're, and a 12 year old, come on. They're, of course they're going to go after all this stuff. But I think the big takeaway for us that we just want to wrap it up with tonight. Um, first of all, God uses imperfect people to complete his perfect plan. And so that gives hope for you and I, gives hope for our lineage. Because every family, by the way, every family has some baggage. Uh, maybe you're the baggage in the family, right? I mean, I, that's how I feel sometimes with my family. You know, I'm the one. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, because I can, I'm not dependent upon you. But our lineage of our past does not define who we are now. Jesus, in this lineage of, of leading to Joseph, didn't let that define who he was. Now, of course, he's God. We know that. Uh, but God's not limited either to our abilities nor our short, shortcomings. His plan cannot and will not be thwarted. And so and that's the background for all these Jewish guys that they would have known. And I, you know, I love that the Bible is, is not in ideas and philosophy. The Bible's real, right? It tells us like it is. It's not pretty. It, it's not like, hey, all these people were wonderful and fantastic. No, everybody apart from Jesus Christ has flaws. Well, Adam and Eve for a short time. We don't know how long, but for a short time, they were, they were pretty good, right? But that's all ruined by what they did. So I just want to encourage us tonight that, that we, we can look at this lineage and go, this was important to the Jews, to lead us to Jesus, and we can look at these guys, and we didn't go through all of them. There's some other ones in there that some people don't even know. There's not anything about them in the Bible, but the Jews would have known who they were. Um, but some of them, you're like, wow. And we didn't go through all the accounts. We could have, but then we would have been here forever. So I, I try to want to get through stuff. So let's pray, and then we'll sing a couple songs. Lord, thank you again for your goodness. Thank you that you are not thwarted by uh, our inabilities or by the, the crazy plans of flesh. And so we're thankful that despite all of this, you weaved your way uh, and your tapestry to show that you included all nations to be waiting in expectation for a Savior. Lord, help us to be encouraged. And uh, thank you again for your in Jesus' name. Amen.